Well, I have just been waiting for this opportunity all week long. I was uh, tormenting Pastor, poor Pastor Carol this week over and every time I'd walk by her office I'd, on my way down to Liz's office for something, I'd stop, I'd say, can I preach right now? Because I've just been so um, looking forward to the opportunity to share with you and to begin this study that we're going to be doing together for the next indeterminate amount of time. Let me just give you a little bit of um, broad context, first of all. I, this past spring, as you, as you know, for the last two and a half years, um, we've been talking about shift, which is this um, sort of a, a displacing and a repositioning. It's a it's a moving of foundation stones in our hearts, and it's an intensification, and it's an acceleration. It's a, a preparation to receive the inheritance of the Lord and to release His outpouring. And by the way, I feel like the Lord is beginning to stir a, a new word in my spirit for those of you that have been waiting for us to to hear a, a, a new word from Shift. Uh, the Lord is stirring one, and I will be sharing that in uh, months to come, but um, but I, uh, this last spring, I had this sense in my spirit as we'd been preaching a series of messages on strategic shifts, I, I heard the Lord speak into my heart that what He is truly looking for is more than just a strategic shift. He's looking for a radical shift. And if you go back and look at the foundational meaning of that word radical, you will discover that it means a return to the root. It's actually, we think of it as frequently in terms of radical as going off in some new direction that's never gone before. However, radical really has to do with returning to foundational roots. And as I've been reflecting on that for some time now, I have sensed the Lord prompting us to go back to a radical root, the radical root, the root of Jesse, and spend some extended time with Jesus. It says, and, and Gene Ramphill this morning in our earlier prayer time was sharing out of this, and it's just perfect for what, to, as an entry point into what we have this morning. This is from Hebrews chapter 1. It says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so He became as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are My Son, today I have become your Father? 
Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. But about the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And righteousness will be the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has set You above Your companions by anointing You with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, You laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of Your hands. They will perish, but You remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment that will be changed. They will be changed, but You remain the same, and Your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits to serve those who will inherit salvation? So this morning, in obedience to the prophetic word of the Lord, and in obedience to His invitation to us to return to the root, and experience radical shift in our lives. This morning, we are launching a study of the Gospel of Mark, which I have entitled simply, Good News, Great Story. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, which is the second book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, may I please encourage you to take advantage of the Bible that is located conveniently right in front of you in the pew and turn to page 706 in the pew Bible so that you can follow along this morning with the text. I I really like the sound of pages turning. I like that um, the feel of having the text in your hands. I Recently just got a new Bible, and I'm still finding my way around it. My old Bible just, well, it sort of fell apart. So I was no longer able to, to, to utilize it. And I, but I just love, there's just something just wonderful about interacting, again, with the text of the Lord. So this morning, we're launching into this study of the Gospel of Mark, and I want to begin with some sort of just foundation stones for our study, just to to give you some basic background on the facts about this Gospel of Mark. And to do that, we first need to just answer a very simple question, what is a Gospel? Now, let me encourage you, please, as well, in addition to the sound of pages turning, I love the sound of pens scratching on paper. It delights my heart. And I would encourage you, because over the next, we're going to be just kind of walking through the the text over the next many months, and uh, a real opportunity here for you to get sort of a comprehensive look at, uh, at this book. Now, why, first of all, maybe let me answer this question even before we get to what is the gospel. Why are we studying Mark in particular? Well, well, let me, uh, I'll, I'll wait with that one. We'll, we'll get to that question in just a moment. Let me go to this first question. What is a gospel? Well, as the title of my message, uh, already gives you a hint. A gospel is good news and a great story. It literally means good news. It's, a, it's an announcement, a proclamation of something 
that has happened that is momentous and historical in nature. Gospel was understood. There, there was some background at that time for this word gospel, but when it comes to the New Testament and the writers of the gospels about Jesus, they take the, a, a word that was somewhat familiar and use it for their own purposes, specifically and particularly to speak of the good news and the great story about Jesus Christ. It is a proclamation, a herald, an announcement of Jesus. It is not simply a biography. It's not simply a history. It is more... It is those things, but it is much more than those things. It is actually an announcement and a proclamation of Jesus. It is additionally, it's about Jesus, and it is the very words and preaching and proclamations of Jesus. It's the preaching of Jesus Christ and God's saving power accomplished through Him for all who believe. So it is a proclamation about Jesus as well as the preaching of Jesus. It encompasses His words. It encompasses His message. But lastly, and perhaps most significantly and importantly for us to understand, and this is the very Scripture's own understanding of what the Gospel is, the Gospel is a message that carries the power and living presence of Jesus. It's a message that carries the power and living presence of Jesus Christ, when we begin to interact with the Gospels, we're not simply looking at words on a page. We are actually having a right now encounter with the power and presence of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Do you, do we grasp that reality? We are actually encountering the living God. These aren't dry, dusty words on a page. These words carry the presence of Christ speaking to us. Now, who is Mark? That's our next question, just to get us oriented around the facts. First of all, it's important to know that nowhere in the transcript, in the, in, in, nowhere in, in, in any, anywhere within the gospel, does it say that the writer is Mark. It ha- the heading that you have in your Bible says Mark. That isn't in the manuscript. However, from the very earliest times and the earliest historians and the very 
all the way the tradition of the church, way, way back, from the very beginning, it was recognized and understood by all that the writer of this particular gospel is Mark. And as we find out, there are a number of places in the scriptures that speak about Mark. He actually shows up in a number of locations. He first shows up in his own gospel at the end, and he's known as John Mark. And he shows up here in Mark 14, unnamed, but again, understood as the very same person. It says, a young man wearing nothing. This is when Jesus is being arrested. Remember? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's being arrested. And there was a young man there wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. This is our John Mark. Showing up first here in his own Gospel. He shows up again in the book of Acts. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary. This is speaking of Peter. The mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. It's understood uh, again, in tradition, that, that it was the upper room, that Mary was the owner of the upper room where the disciples had gathered for, for um, waiting for Pentecost and the day of Pentecost. It's where the early church gathered frequently there in Jerusalem. And Mary was John Mark's mother. And so, so Mark was there from the very beginning. He was there with Jesus. He was there with the early church. And he was there when the early church began its mission outreach. It says, the two of them, this is speaking of Barnabas and Paul, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. This is when they're leaving from Antioch on the, on the first missionary journey. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them there as their helper. This is John Mark again. Now you know what happens next is that in the midst of that first missionary journey... Mark leaves the group. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Now we don't know why John Mark left them, but we do know this, that his leaving of them was viewed by Paul as a desertion in the line of duty. And in fact, one of the infamous things that we, understand, that we know about Mark is that he was the one who caused a separation between Barnabas and Paul. It's, re- it's recorded for us in Acts 15. As they're preparing to go out on the next missionary journey, sometime later Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back, visit the brother in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord, see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company and Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now, If this was the end of the story of John Mark, it would be rather discouraging. I mean, how would you like to be known as the one who caused the rift between Paul and Barnabas? And that would be the moniker that would follow you for the rest of your life. But wonderfully, and this is a whole sermon of its own, which I will do my best to endeavor not to preach to you this morning, is that it's not the end of the story because God is the great God of second chances. And we find out that it says in Colossians 4.10, Paul writing says, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. 
You have received instructions about Him. If He comes to you, welcome Him. Paul goes on to say, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And even more importantly, in 2 Timothy, he says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. 2 Timothy 4.11 So at some point, there was a restoration between Mark. There was a reconciliation between him and Paul. And he's become a fellow worker, a co-laborer. In fact, more than that, bring him to me because he's helpful to me in my ministry. One other thing, very significant thing that we need to know about Mark, in addition that we have found that he's a cousin to Barnabas and a co-laborer of Paul, he's also a collaborator with Peter. In Peter's um, first letter, he says, She who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends her greeting And so does my son, Mark. In fact, scholars would say as they study the gospel, as they've studied the gospel of Mark, and as you look into it, you will find that there is a strong correlation between Mark and his presentation of his gospel and the teachings of Peter. And so it is, in in many ways, Mark is, in a sense, utilizing Peter, the Apostle Peter, and Peter's relationship with Christ, his experience as an apostle and a disciple of Jesus, as sort of foundation for his teaching and for his writings herein the Gospel of Mark. And so we have that apostolic authority that is behind Mark and behind his teaching that comes through the Apostle Peter, his co-laboring with Paul, his co-laboring and as a cousin of Barnabas. There, from the time of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, there with the early church, there with the early mission, Mark, John Mark has a unique perspective that he brings to the Gospel, the good news, the great story of Jesus. Now, that brings us to our third question. What is Mark's unique vision? We need to understand that Mark is understood by most as perhaps the earliest of the Gospels. And and there's a lot of correlation, particularly if you study in Matthew and Luke, what are known as the Synoptic Gospels. There's a a lot of corollary um, uh, recounts and accounts that happen between the three of them. And and, and each of them sort of are facets in a diamond. And then uh, obviously the Apostle John in the Gospel of John presents another unique dimension And each of them, again, like looking through a prism or looking through the facets of a diamond, each of them bring a unique perspective to their Gospel. Matthew. Well, first of all, let me read this Scripture from Revelation 4. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth like a flying eagle. Now, down through the ages, tradition has taken it that that John here in seeing this was seeing the four writers of the Gospels. Now, 
I don't know whether that's actual, you know, but, but that's, that's how it's been interpreted and understood that he's seeing. And, and so each of them, he's seeing these four living in, in these four faces, and each of these faces reveals a unique, again, perspective or dimension of understanding about Jesus Christ and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. When it comes to Matthew, the face is that of the lion. Matthew, his focus is, behold your king. Matthew is writing particularly and specifically to the Jews and is establishing the rights of Jesus as king of the Jews. Luke represents, uh, the picture is that of the ox. And the picture is that of the sacrifice, behold your Savior. And some of you that have been around Bethel for a while know that about a decade ago we spent two, three years in the Gospel of Luke. John, the picture is that of the eagle. And John brings that perspective, that timeless, eternal perspective, bringing to a universal audience Stressing the deity of Christ and His unique relationship with the Father. And if we put a moniker over the Gospel of John, we would say, Behold your God. Now when it comes to Mark, the picture is that of the man. And Mark, who is writing to particularly a Roman audience, appealing to the practical, common Roman citizen, says, Behold, your servant. In fact, and you might want to just make note of this, and if you have your own Bible, you might want to underline a particular passage of Scripture because it is the key Scripture, the key verse for the entire Gospel of Mark. And that verse is found in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Here's the heart of this Gospel. Here's the heart of the unique vision that Mark is bringing For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So, there are many other things that we could say about the facts of the Gospel of Mark, but I'm going to pause there because I want to continue on now and build on that foundation for a moment as we begin now to interact with the text itself. And so this morning, in addition to the facts about the Gospel of Mark, what I really want to do is look at the foundation. The roots. And there's two really significant pillars that I want to take a look at this morning as we conclude this opening of our study of this incredible Gospel. First of all, we need 
to answer the most significant question. And this is one of the foundations of the Gospel of Mark. It's the foundation, of course, of every Gospel in in that sense. Answering that question, who is Jesus? Mark begins his Gospel in this way. He says, the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, does anybody notice something interesting how, uh, about the way that, that Mark opens up here? What, what, what's interesting about what he says here? What does he say? What's the, what's the very first words that come up? Well, yes, but even before that, the beginning. And what, is, what immediately comes to your mind when you hear that? In the beginning, God. Genesis 1.1. So Mark is already cueing us into something very significant and important. This beginning, he's talking about, you know, in Genesis, it's the beginning of creation. Mark now is heralding to us that there is a new beginning. There is a recreation that is coming. And it's in the heralding and pronouncement and proclamation of Jesus Christ. And so as we consider this radical shift, returning to the root, we are in essence returning to the beginning. The very beginning. In the beginning, the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who is Jesus? Jesus' is name, Yeshua, is salvation. It's from Joshua. It's, it's, it's the, the, the etymology is the same as Joshua. It's God is Yahweh, is our salvation. And he gives him some very specific titles, and there are actually four titles that run through the Gospel of Mark. Two of which are located right here in this first verse. The first title is that He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Now, we're so accustomed to saying Jesus Christ that we think Jesus is His first name and Christ is His last name. But that's not actually the case. Christ is not a name, it's a title. It's a position that Jesus has. He is the Christ, which in the Hebrew is the same as Messiah. And both of them can be understood or or translated anointed one. He is the anointed one. God's anointed one. In Isaiah chapter 61, this very familiar scripture, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release darkness for the release from darkness for the prisoners. Here we already have the declaration right there in the prophetic pronouncement of Jesus, of Isaiah, of, of who the Christ, the Messiah, what his position, what he is anointed to do. Preaching that good news, the gospel, to the poor, 
binding up the brokenhearted, freedom for the captives, release for the prisoners. In Mark, one of the key passages, another key passage in Mark that we'll get to eventually, Mark 8, 29, Peter Jesus asks, what about you? He's talking with the disciples. People are saying, Jesus is this, Jesus is that. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. You're the Christ. Hallelujah. He's the anointed one. The long-awaited Messiah. He's the Son of God. He is the Son of God. We read earlier in Hebrews chapter 1, which quotes Psalm 2, 6 and 7. I have installed my King on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my Son. Today I have become your Father. Again, speaking prophetically about Jesus. Again, later in the Gospel of Mark, we'll come to this passage in Mark 15, towards the very end of the book, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the Son of God. Surely this man was the Son of God. Hmm. Now, the title that Jesus, particularly in the Gospel of Mark here, most frequently gives to himself is the title, the Son of Man. He is the Son of Man. The Son of Man is something that goes back again into the Old Testament, into the prophetic books, and specifically into the book of Daniel. We have this this particular picture of the Son of Man. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven and approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. And He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the Son of Man. When Jesus was on trial just before His crucifixion, there was this conversation with the high priest. And the high priest asked Him, listen to this, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? In other words, are you the Messiah, the one that we, the anointed one? Are you the Son of God? He asked him about those first two titles that we just looked at a moment ago. And Jesus says, I am. I am. And, he says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Not only am I the Messiah, not only am I the Son of God, I am the Son of Man. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know why I'm thinking of Millie Iverson, who always, you know, just went captivated by these pictures. Of, she'd just say, don't you just love him? 
Don't you just love Him? I just want you to fall in love with Him today again. This Jesus, He's the anointed one preaching the good news to the poor, giving to us the hope of release and restoration. He is the very Son of God who inherits the nations. He is the Son of Man with all authority and dominion and power. And this same Jesus is also the servant. And here again we get to that unique vision that Mark brings to us. He is the servant. In Isaiah, Isaiah has this picture several several times in the suffering servant um, prophetic passages. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just later on in that passage, he says that it was the Lord's will to crush him, cause him to suffer, and through the Lord make his life a guilt offering. He will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Wow. Wow. He is the suffering servant. And again, we come back to our passage. In Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man, here we go, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He came to be the suffering servant. It's going to be a picture and a thread that runs throughout this Gospel. So we have captured here this incredible picture in this year of outpouring. We have the picture of the outpouring of His reign and rule, as well as the picture of the outpouring of His suffering and grace poured out to us and then called to be poured out through us. Which brings us to the second foundation pillar that we need to look at this morning. Who is Jesus? And what response then is required of us? What's the response that is required? Once we get in touch with who this Jesus is, what are we called to? What's the the response that we are invited into? And again, Mark begins his Gospel in this way. Now, verses 2-8 through at the beginning. So if you've got your text out, read along here. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. We read a portion of that this morning in Isaiah 40. That actually, and, and, and it, this is not uncommon for them to use this sort of appellation. The actual, um, mar, uh, the actual first text there, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, comes out of Malachi 3.1. And then a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, coming from Isaiah chapter 40. And so John came. This is John the Baptist now, baptizing in the desert region, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem went out to him. And confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And This was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, 
the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Very simply this morning, and we really are at the roots here this morning, this radical shift, returning to those roots in our response, the first is this, repent. Repent. Repentance means to turn from the direction you're going and return to the Lord. In Hosea chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Afterwards the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to His blessings in the last day. This is the heart of repentance, is returning and seeking the Lord. It means a repenting from our self-righteousness. That I can earn my way into God's favor. But a recognition that it isn't simply enough that I'm a, quote, good person. That my self-righteousness is before God as filthy rags. It's a repentance from my judgmentalism where I stand as the jury and judge over the lives of those around me rather than releasing them into the hands of God. It's a repentance from that judgmentalism. I mean, John here and, and in the other Scriptures, it talks about him speaking to the Pharisees and to those who are the religious ones saying, you brood of vipers. I mean, he's, he's talking to them in the midst of their judgmentalism. Their religiosity. Their, and our hypocrisy. Hypocrisy being defined as the gap between where we are and where we ought to be. And by any measure or definition, every single one of us in this room is a hypocrite and struggles with hypocrisy. But repentance calls us to turn away from that hypocrisy and towards the Lord. Is the gap growing wider or is the gap growing narrower in our lives? Repent. And then receive. Receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The people were waiting expectantly. This is in the parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke. We're waiting expectantly and we're all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. What is that good news? That good news is to repent and turn to Christ and receive His baptism that comes, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes with wind and with fire. The wind 
of life and the fire of purity and revelation. Again, the picture here in the threshing floor. This bare spot that is there. And the winnowing fork taking the grain and after it's been crushed, then taking it and throwing it into the air. And the wind blows away the chaff. And what remains is life of the seed. And the chaff is burned up. And whatever in our lives that cannot be purified, the fire of the Spirit comes and destroys. And whatever the fire cannot destroy, it purifies. And He reveals to us again. And John the Baptist is saying, there is one coming. I'm not the one, but I am pointing to the one who I'm not even... I am not even um, privileged. I'm not even honorable enough to untie the thongs of his sandals, to do the thing that, that only a servant would do. Not even a disciple, a servant. I'm not even worthy to do that. But this one who is coming, he will reveal the fullness of the plans and purposes of God to you. So this morning, the invitation is this, to return and seek the Lord. Return and seek the Lord. Return and seek the Lord. That's the repentance. The call to repentance. Knowing that with that call to repentance, there is the proclamation of forgiveness and freedom that comes as a part of that. That's the call to baptism. That's why we're having a baptism service next Sunday morning as we do on a periodic basis because it gives us an opportunity to, in a very concrete way, step into the reality of that repentance. And you are invited and encouraged today. If you've not taken that step in obedience and in faith in response to the Word of the Lord, I encourage you today to be baptized. Scripture says, Jesus, repent and be baptized was the declaration of the apostles. The encouragement that is given to us. And receive the fullness of the Spirit in your life. A fresh baptism of His life and purity and power and revelation of His fire and wind. Let Him blow through your heart afresh today. This morning is just a beginning. Next week and the weeks to come, we are going to continue in this good news, great story of the Gospel of Mark. And I would encourage you to take and reread these texts and and go in and dig out and and go back and search through and look through the Scriptures and, and delve in and dive in and dig in. Because there is a treasure trove here for us. To receive. Worship team, come on up if you would, please. So my question this morning, more than a generic question now, is a specific question. What response is required of me today? That's the question you and I need to ask the Lord right now. So if we could just close our eyes for a moment and just sort of... <laughs> Set everything else aside for a moment. Just sort of close things up here. 
and open up your heart and your spirit this morning. And ask the question of the Lord Jesus. Ask of the Spirit, Spirit of the living God, we ask you right now, what response is required of me today? Not generically, not to, the, not to my spouse or my friend or my child or my parent or somebody else around me. Somebody I think that should be hearing this message, not me. But for me, what response is required of me today? Are there any areas in my life, Lord, that, that need to be repented of? Is there some self-righteousness? Judgmentalism? Hypocrisy? Other areas that need to be brought into the light? Am I walking in the fullness of your spirit? Are there some dry bones, some dead places in my life that need the breath of life? Are there some places that need the fire of your purity to come to bring revelation? Before the Lord right now, you ask him those things. And you can respond right where you are, or if you want, I'm going to once again open up the altar this morning. I know some of you responded earlier. Maybe you want to respond again. Maybe through the preaching of the word this morning, the Lord has revealed something in your heart. You just want to respond this morning. I'm just going to open up the altar in a moment. I'll give a benediction prayer. But we're going to first sing a prayer to the Lord. Light the fire. I stand to praise you and I fall to my knees. My spirit is hungry, but my flesh is so weak. Light the fire in my soul. Would you please respond today as the Spirit leads?